The Window on the World, an international press review by the European Democratic Party, bringing you weekly news and commentaries that matter. Welcome to the sixth episode of the second season of The Window on the World. Today is Friday 30th of September and in this podcast we will hear the best editorials from the world on the result of the general election in Italy, the murder of the Iranian woman Masa Amini and the risk of nuclear escalation of the war in Ukraine. We'll start right away with the first series of editorials. The first three comments of the day concern the general elections held in Italy last Sunday. In the polls, the right-wing coalition composed of Brothers of Italy, Forza Italia and the League, triumphed with about 44% of the vote in both the House and the Senate. The far-right party, Brothers of Italy, recorded the best results in its history, with 26% of the vote, while Forza Italia and the League both stopped at around 8%. The defeated coalition, the center-left on the other hand, garnered about 26% of the vote with the Democratic Party snatching 19% of the ballots in its favor. The third party, on the other hand, was a five-star movement, with 15% of the vote. Finally, with about 7% of the vote, we find the coalition composed of the parties Italia Viva, a member of the European Democratic Party, and Azioni. We start from the heart of Europe with today's first editorial on the Italian elections, more specifically from the German newspaper Die Welt. For journalist Thomas Schmidt, the victory of Giorgio Maloney's party is not the success of a political idea. Rather, Brothers of Italy's success would be due to the fact that it was perceived as the only one in opposition, thus attracting the vote of the dissatisfied, the frustrated and those tired of politics. Brothers of Italy are the only ones who have consistently and stubbornly said no to everything that the three past governments have done in the last four years. The columnist explains. Schmidt also recalls how in recent years Italian voters have been very quick to support a party such as the Five Star Movement in 2018, only to abandon it just as quickly. Now it seems to be the brothers of Italy's turn to represent the voters' new hope. Despite this, however, Meloni's success is essentially an anti-political success. Evidence of this is the fact that she has failed to reverse the trend of declining voter participation. Only about two-thirds of voters went to the polls, 10% less than four years ago. Therefore, Schmidt concludes, the election campaign that just ended was very introspective and representative of Italian political sentiment in recent years. The next article comes from the Belgian newspaper La Libre, According to the author of the editorial, François Mathieu, the European Union and its member states are generally incapable of coping with the polarization of society and the rise of extremism. For Mathieu, this was already demonstrated in 2002 when the far-right politician Jean-Marie Le Pen managed to make it to the second round of the French presidential election. Framing the Italian elections in a broader perspective, today the agony of the traditional political world continues, with Sweden and Italy as the most recent examples. Indeed, in both of these countries, far-right parties have recently triumphed in elections. Will it be necessary once again for fears to materialize violently in one or another of our European societies 
so that collectively we reclaim the need to defend our democracies, the journalist asks, concerned about the direction in which societies in European countries are heading. The crisis we have gone through and are going through, Mathieu explains, arouse legitimate fears and create increasingly tangible social inequalities within populations. It is the duty of authorities, whether local, national or supranational, to manage and accompany these changes, leaving no one behind. Never before, the conclusion reads, has the brown menace come so close to impose its radicalism. But where does this whiteboard turn in Italian politics come from? In his editorial published in the British newspaper The Guardian, David Broder analyzes the process of normalization of the post-fascist party that triumphed in the elections. According to the writer, Berlusconi allegedly played a key role in this, forming a government in 1994, allying himself with the League and the fascists and legitimizing them. From the outset, Broder points out, Berlusconi made harsh anti-immigrant statements, routinely trivialized Mussolini's crimes and appointed lifelong neo-fascists to top jobs. The current election-winning party Brothers of Italy is rooted in the Movimiento Sociale Italiano, a neo-fascist party created in 1946, which ran in elections but retained a deep hostility toward the republic created at the end of the anti-fascist resistance. Now Brothers of Italy seems to combine all far-right traditions with contemporary conspiracy theories, such as that of ethnic replacement taking place in Western countries. According to this theory, ongoing immigration from the Middle East and North Africa would serve to replace local peoples in Western countries. These theories, as well as the explicit desire to want to amend the constitution to increase the powers of the President of the Republic and limit that of the chambers, brings Brothers of Italy closer to Viktor Orbán's Hungary, with which it has a friendly relationship. We can expect Meloni and her new MPs to lean into attacks on immigrants. LGBT lobbies, trade unions and other groups they call the left-wing establishment, just as they do in Hungary, the author speculates. The real fear, Broder concludes, is who this government will choose to offload the fallout of this crisis onto. The result of the vote was also commented on by Sandro Gozzi, Secretary General of the European Democratic Party. It will be the first time that the far right will be at the head of a founding country of the European Union, the MEP noted. For Gozi, its relations with the European Union will undoubtedly be problematic on issues of the rule of law, fundamental freedoms and ecological transition. Looking at the Italian political situation, according to the Italian politician, there is no longer a centre-left with a democratic party that has refused to form a republican front. The solution then would be an alliance with the so-called Third Pole, composed of Azione and Italia Viva. A month ago, it did not exist and it obtained 8%. It can bring together reformist and liberal forces against Fratelli d'Italia. The second theme concerns the possibility of Putin's use of nuclear weapons during the conflict in Ukraine. Let's start with the southern European media outlet, the Spanish El País. What are the odds of a Russian nuclear attack? Asked columnist Wolfgang Munchau. Of course, the author is keen to point out we are in the realm of speculation. 
For Munchau, the most likely scenario in which Putin decides to use nuclear weapons involves the use of a small device by the Kremlin, with the aim of breaking the Western alliance. In particular, the editorial explains, it would break the Biden-Scholz axis. Since the beginning of the war, I have argued that the Germans are the weak link in the alliance. And even Putin is aware of German fragility. The United States in that case would call for NATO's collective intervention, arguing that radiation threatens territories of the alliance, an argument that would hardly be accepted by the German government. Ultimately, however, there are more reasons to think that Putin does not use nuclear weapons, as there are many more ways to go wrong than to go right. The next editorial takes us to the opposite side of Europe and to the pages of the British newspaper The Guardian. According to Simon Jenkins, Putin says he is ready to use a nuclear weapon, as his conquest has been justly defeated so far, and he sees no other way forward. The Kremlin, as evidenced also by recent protests, would also be under pressure from within. Polls show that a quarter to half of Russians oppose the war, a fact due to the succession of defeats on the ground. Like many a commander forced into retreat, Jenkin writes, Putin is tormented by the choice of escalation or abject defeat. As for any Western response to the use of nuclear weapons, this would serve no tactical purpose and would simply open the door to escalation. The biggest threat, namely the nuclear threat, inevitably opens the discussion of how to end the war. Ukraine's President Zelensky is increasingly calling for more aid, intent as he is on returning Ukraine's borders to what they were in 2014. While this cause remains just, there must come a point when a war to conquer all of Ukraine becomes one of where to draw a line of armistice. The conflict in the area has been going on for eight years and has increasingly taken on the colors of a proxy conflict between the West and the East. Therein lies the danger of Putin's escalation. Bringing the conflict to an end and avoiding the worst-case scenario involves a new challenge, reaching a compromise. The last article on the subject takes us back to Europe and more specifically to Belgium in the EU Observer masthead. Tommy Houtanen, executive director of the Wilfried Martin Center for European Studies, questions the possible consequences of using nuclear weapons. First, Russia's nuclear attack would not be seen as a sign of strength, but rather as a sign of extreme weakness, an extreme and desperate move. This would trigger NATO's reaction, and it would also not ensure that Ukraine would suddenly stop defending itself. Russia's seat on the UN Secretary Council would be challenged, and the Kremlin could lose the support of allied countries such as China. Russia's neighboring countries would feel threatened by this unwieldy neighbor who, if he does not get his way, is willing to use nuclear weapons. With the consequence that smaller countries too might decide to start their own nuclear weapons programs, multiplying the risk of nuclear war. The European Union, on the other hand, for its part, should analyze what this threat means for the security of the continent and what European countries must do to strengthen their nuclear deterrence in the name of joint action. The final editorial series of the day takes us out of Europe and into the Middle East to address the issue of the death of Masa Amini, an Iranian woman who was arrested for wearing a headscarf in a manner deemed inappropriate. During her detention, the girl was beaten and tortured. 
The woman's death, which occurred in the hospital three days after her arrest, sparked strong street protests in dozens of Iranian cities. In many cases, the protests were violently suppressed by the Middle Eastern countries' police and security forces. The first opinion on the subject comes from France, from the newspaper Le Monde. For Gilles Paris, however, we should not be fooled by the young woman's death. The reason for the arrest, namely the crime of inappropriate clothing, might suggest that Iran is a religious regime controlled by the mullahs. In reality, according to the columnist, since the 1979 Islamic Revolution, the regime has continued to slip into the hands of an essentially military power, of which the guards of the revolution form the backbone. Indeed, the revolution guards managed to impose their authority through their grip on the economy and through the use of force by their militia. A military power also made up of the celebration of their saints, such as General Ghassim Soleimani, killed in January 2020 in Baghdad by an American attack. While suppressing the last remaining political freedoms, Paris notes, this new regime could partially replace Islamism with nationalism as the ideology of the Iranian state. The use of violence to suppress protests then fits into a plan for the preservation of power by Iran's military apparatus, the editorial author concludes. Iranian affairs have certainly not gone unnoticed in the United States. Indeed, the next editorial comes from the pages of the New York Times and bears the signature of Iranian-American writer Firuze Dumas. For the writer, the obligation to wear the hijab or chador the two typical Islamic veils no longer stemmed only from a religious belief. It has become a symbol of a basic human right that has been taken away. Today, Iranian women risk imprisonment or worse for an unimaginary simple demand, the freedom to leave the house without covering their heads, observes Dumas. According to the columnist, the oppression of women also harms the entire country. Today's Iran is full of educated, and capable women who have reached the top of their fields, whose potential, however, is limited by the discriminatory laws in place. Freeing them from the oppression of the patriarchal system in which they live would empower them to make an even greater contribution to society for the benefit of all Iranians. Dumas also predicts that the desire for change from which the protest started will not stop anytime soon. Without some kind of compromise on the part of the government, Iran will head towards even greater unrest. In closing her article, the writer draws a parallel with oil, a pivotal resource in Iran's economy. Iran's greatest resource has never been underground. Iran's greatest resource is marching through the streets right now. The final editorial in this installment takes us back to Europe. We go to Italy and to the pages of the newspaper La Repubblica, where columnist Gianni Vernetti draws a parallel between the ongoing protests in Iran and Russia. In both countries, although triggered by different events, young people have taken to the streets to protest against the regimes in their respective countries. The squares in Moscow and Tehran these days reveal the structural weakness of two autocratic regimes that are increasingly isolated and at the same time increasingly dangerous for global stability, Vernetti argues. The squares filled with protesters are demanding more rights and an end to anachronistic regimes, explains the columnist who, however, also notes how the protests also send a very strong message to the West, sweeping away too many years of appeasement 
Realpolitik and cultural relativism. For too long, the editorial says, the community of Western democratic countries has been convinced that economic globalization would also serve to peacefully spread democracy, freedom and rights. Or worse, international diplomacies were sometimes convinced that these regimes were a source of stability, a belief that has been swept away by recent events. The young people and women in the squares of Tehran and Moscow, Vernetti concludes, demonstrate how free choice can bring down tyrants and demand a new season of globalization of rights. And that brings us to the end of the sixth episode of the second season of The Window on the World. Thank you so much for following us and we look forward to seeing you next Friday, always with the best editorials from Europe and the world. This week's editorial work was edited by Daniel Rutza and behind the mic, it's me, Gail Rago. See you next week. 